Hello and welcome to Q&A Quest episode 138. I am your totally not tired host, Mike Apps, a.k.a. Wheels, and with me as always. Uh, trapped in the Wheel of Harma, uh, David McCartney, Fanboy Master. And spinning in circles, Michael Baker, Gaijin no Katari. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, too much Dragon Quest. It's going to kill me. Someone is playing a lot of Dragon Quest. <laughs> My clock says, like, so the, the, question, the question is can you actually access the final boss now or. Oh, I could. Then just do it. No. <laughs> you can always go back and finish the other stuff later. I just put the game out of its misery first. No, no, like, I keep saying, like, oh, too much, I need to stop, but it's like, that's more like a value judgment of myself rather than a value judgment about whether I'm still enjoying it. <laughs> it's It feels like a bad use of time, but I'm still enjoying myself. I'm still finding new costumes and bonus dungeons and, like, not as bonus dungeons, but still technically optional dungeons. Hmm. You're caught in the whirlpool of more content. Yeah, but I mean, all of it's actually good, so I'm not angry about it. But yeah, like, so I was just, for anyone who played a significant amount of Dragon Quest Eleven, I was just finishing up the Wheel of Harma side quest. That's difficult. We'll go with that. That one requires very special optimizations. But I did it. They're dead now, and I Yay. got a sword that I probably won't use because that's not my preferred build, but I can use it. <sighs> yeah, it's good. Uh, the Switch version adds somehow even more. I might not do all of the 2D like past game content, but apparently there is yet another uh, secret feature hidden behind finishing all of it, so maybe... One day. That nice juicy carrot that they're hanging in front of you. It's so big. It's such a long game. Did you play oh. most of the game in 2D, 3D? Oh, almost entirely in 3D because, like, one 4D? of the appeals. That's. No, no, Kudaragi, <laughs> no. Don't make me talk about that time that Kudaragi promised that PlayStation 3 games would be four, d- four dimensional. Oh, oh, God, no. But. Yeah, like. One of the appeals to me about Dragon Quest, especially in 3D, like like 3D Dragon Quest, I should say, is that they look like what you would expect the future of RPGs to have looked like 30 years ago. Mm. (laughs) And so, like, while I enjoy the 2D mode, and I might, if I replay it, I might try playing that way, like, I really, really love the existence of a game that just looks like this is what I thought RPGs might look like in the future once upon a time so and it's a very pretty game that they've done a very good job of optimizing on the Switch I think I've seen like one second sub 30 frames per second frame drops about 10 times throughout the entire game nice it's, mm-hmm. it's a crazy good port and as I thought previously, there is absolutely no way I would have been able to finish this on a console. It just, I don't have that much time to put to sit in front of a TV unless I am becoming a danger to myself. So, you know, uh, very good version. Highly recommended. Excellent game. Uh, and 
as much as I'm talking about how much content there is, the game very specifically gives you several points where it it obviously considers it acceptable for you, the player to consider that the ending of the game. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So, if you want something more, like, it's not short, but I mean, you could stop at about the 40-hour mark and you would hit something that the game would consider an ending. So it's taking the Tolkien approach to ending a series. <laughs> something like that. I wonder how many more, that does make me wonder how many more games they'll have Yuji Hori on for. Hmm. Given how old he's getting, mm-hmm. Let's see, how old is he actually? Um, per Wikipedia, so grain of salt, but he would appear to be sixty-five. Hmm. Given how long these things take to develop, I can't imagine him being there past like Dragon Quest twelve, maybe thirteen, if he really stretches it. Mm-hmm. That'll be weird. That'll be really weird. But yeah, uh, I rambled about what I've been doing. <laughs> what about you guys? Mm. Not sleeping is what it sounds oh, like that. Means. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Not that anyone could blame you. Playing some Monster Hunter, obviously some Lions Alive. And, That's good. Uh, some Switcher Three. Very long, similar. <laughs> yeah, and, just just kind of poking at it and enjoying, kind of figuring out the world and learning about. Uh, I found a character that gives you like an overview of all the political nonsense that's happening and the war and stuff. Just... This is just a big neon light in front of him that says, hey, dum-dums that didn't play the last ones, talk to this guy. <laughs> yeah. I did play a little Witcher 2, I, I definitely need to go back to it, which reminds me, I really, I think they they need to port that one to Switch 2. Just, and, and the first one, too. That... That's <laughs> okay, one, Witcher 1 would actually probably be difficult. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. Just because it's such an old code base and it's built on a very heavily modified version of the Neverwinter Nights engine for some mm. reason. Mm. Uh, but yeah, playing that led me down the road since it just came out on iOS of trying Gwent again. And uh, finding out that it's somewhere along the lines they had completely revamped it so that it's not it's not it's no longer like a straight port of the game from within the Witcher games. It's quite a deal more complicated and quite enjoyable. So I've been It's an actual card game. Now. Yes. Like uh, I enjoyed the original release of Gwent, but it did not have like the depth to keep me interested. This one definitely does. Uh, we'll see how it grows in the future. So yeah, if there's that, it's good stuff. I just remember reading about the mod someone put in that replaced every bit of combat in Witcher 3 with you having to play Gwent with whoever you were fighting. <laughs> uh, I would be down for that. Of course you would. Yeah. <sighs> uh, there we are. Yeah. Uh, I had intended at some point to try the new Atelier this week. Did not, did not happen. You're never going to find the secret hideout now. <laughs> So, 
hopefully this week. Because, I mean, once Pokemon hits, uh, it's, you know, that's all going to go out the window, so you should got to give it a try. Oh man, I just actually saw the claim, the supposed leaked list of what Pokemon are and aren't in it. I saw a bit of that, and well, hopefully it wasn't anything new, it was just some things that might end, but it may not be in it, which I really don't, could care less about. I say burn... We yelled at each other about yes. it, it was great. I say destroy all the old things, um, you know, uh, let's take the Kylo Ren approach, you know, eliminate the entire old Pokedex and have all new stuff. Let's do it. Wow. Yeah, let's Kylo, let's Kylo Ren the fuck out of that shit. Well, well, this is going in the 18 plus <laughs> section now. Um, but yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I wouldn't go that far, but I mean, there are some things that repeatedly come back that I might have opinions on maybe coming yeah. back less. <laughs> Uh, I mean, the thing is super expansive, and how many freaking different bird Pokemon do we actually need? Well, they did trim out, like, based on this leak, and we're both being very vague for obvious reasons, but they did a lot of trimming, and some of it is stuff that I wouldn't expect, like, especially, like, if the leak is correct, where the majority of them seem to have come from. Hmm. So, I have no idea which numbers you're talking about, but I'm thinking there's a whole lot of birds in the world, and especially in Japan, and I'm kind of interested in seeing a cormorant Pokemon, personally. <laughs> Just because I saw one on Sunday, an actual cormorant, and it's like, hello, dude. So. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't really mean that they shouldn't do new bird Pokemon. I mean that there's some... That they are... don't need to include every old bird Pokemon. Yeah, and there's some that are kind of similar, super similar that we don't need. Yeah, well, they kind of, they've kind of done away with that. There was a period up through, like, Gen 5-ish where every uh, entry would have its own, like, trash bird that you start on and then inevitably throw away later in the game. And, like, Gen 6 and 7 don't really do that. Like, Gen 6 has, like, a... had, well, at the time, it was a crazy powerful uh, bird in Talonflame. And then I don't think Gen 7 really had an equivalent, and I kind of doubt Gen 8 does either. <laughs> well, the only bird we ever need is Howlucha. I thought you were going to say Toucanon? That's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> Toucanon is a powerful bird. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I, like, I like all the birds. I mean, I can acknowledge that a lot of them are interchangeable, but it's more f for flavor as much as anything else. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's more just a case of, like, I, I'm fine with not seeing Staraptor reappear. That's fine. I don't even remember if that was on the list of ones that aren't reappearing, but in the supposed leak, it was just one of those things where it's like, what's a bird that I remember seeing that it's like, why is this, this is just, yeah. This is just this Oh, that one, the, um, what, what's the, uh, the smallest version of that one? Startlet? Uh, Starly, I think, something like that. Yeah, yeah, those live in my area. <laughs> They're called Mukudori over here. They are adorable little things. Um, yeah. I see them quite regularly. So, well, Starly reasonably captures the adorable little thing aspect of that. Yep. I'm just waiting for them to do a Mejiro. Um, it's called a white eye in English. 
and um, it's got I mean it's got these little black um, little beady black eyes with a ring of white fluff around them so it's kind of mm-hmm. cute there and the bird itself is about the same size shape color and general aerodynamics of a flying lime <laughs> yeah it kind of looks like that yep I mean they're cute little guys um, oh, yeah. I mean there's so many birds I'm honestly I'm frankly surprised we don't have more beetle Pokemon yeah, I think they consider that a little too on the nose. They kind of confine themselves to just like uh, Heracross. Heracross, I'm not sure if Pinsir would count. Probably doesn't. Uh, and of course the uh, the two the two fireflies and ladybugs. Yeah. Which in Japanese they don't even count those in the same group as the main beetles. Yeah. Even though they are. So. Yeah. Uh, oh, and yes. um, and what's his face from? Sun Moon, the electric beetle. Mm-hmm. Kua Gainon yeah. in Japanese. Um, it's a stag beetle. Yeah. Kuwagata? Yeah, that's what it's based on. Yeah, Kuwagata. <laughs> Boomer Kuwagata. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, Boomer Kuwanger. Metal yeah, Mega Man's X. Yeah. But nobody knew how to translate that one properly. Yeah. I love how they got a second crack at that with Mega Man Maverick Hunter X and decided that the way to rename him to make him more obvious was Boomerang Kuwanger. You had one chance, and you... And you blew it. You blew it on the part of the name that no one was confused about. Yeah. Uh, you been playing anything, Gaijin, there? Well, I recently located a, um, actually it was a Mega Man themed roguelike. Oh, 20 double X? Yep. And I just loaded up and saw the opening sequence and I'm like, I have seen this, like, almost sprite for sprite in a different Mega Man game. Yep, yep. I remember uh, talking to one of the devs of that at PAX. And it was right after Mighty Number no. Nine came out, mm-hmm. and someone nearby was asking them, like, "So, what did you guys think of Mighty Number no. Nine? And they said, "Well, we don't want to say too much, but it certainly did wonders for our game." <laughs> <laughs> so that was an interesting conversation to overhear. <laughs> but yeah, Twenty Double X is good. Uh, I think that's available on just about everything at this point, but I'm not sure. I might be conflating that. Well, it's on Switch, and that's yeah. all you need. I mean, that's also true. Uh, yeah. But it might also be on PS4 and or Xbox. Probably. Yeah, yeah, it's on PS4. Uh, I tend to like that kind of roguelike-ish construction. It's also on Xbox. Uh, that kind of roguelike-ish construction a little better when it's action-based because if I screw up, I at least have... If I get a bad roll, I at least can still just play it well. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so, had the chance to play much of it, or...? No, I just missed around with a bit. I've met two different bosses so far. Oh, sure. Yeah. And realize that, hey, the bosses are much more like Toho than they are like Mega Man. Yeah. Thankfully, they're easy, it's easier to dodge the bullet hell than your average Toho. I was watching 
a friend play a Toho sort of Castlevania-esque construction, but it still had like Toho bullet hell boss boss fights. So it was really just a very strange experience to watch. It was normally just like a like Metroidvania that just occasionally turned into platforming bullet hell. Yeah. That also caused me to have to look up like how on earth the licensing works on Toho, given how weird its uh, copyright status must be. Uh, yeah. So it, it pro- that probably benefits from Japan's interesting take on copyright laws to begin with, and or licensing for them. Yeah. It, making it a lot easier for fanworks to exist and then for fanworks to get recognition and re-licensed for actual existence. Yeah, I think in terms of, like, official things, it's just everything has to sort of pass under Zun's nose and he has to say yes to it, but since there's such a large farm league of things that are officially they don't exist, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, he he doesn't, a lot of it can just sort of fly under the radar because that's all that it ever wants to be, and if it wants to be official, well, it has a path to that. It has to go through... Actually, I thought it was interesting that they actually created a subsidiary company to process possible like professionalization of certain fan works in Toho. I mean, that, that just makes sense, but yeah, it's interesting that they would actually do it. I mean, could you think of a single American company that would even consider it? No, I don't think our... I don't think our copyright laws are really built for that sort of thing. Exactly. Um, it's it's also very... I mean, I can understand being very focused on rights and licensing, but there's also taking it a bit too far. Mm-hmm. And yeah, It reminds me of how Capcom uh, like 10 years ago released an Ace Attorney that like it was labeled like Case Files manga, and it was basically, it was a bunch of uh like fan work manga from Japan it's like they could totally do that because like Capcom Japan just sort of processes how that's licensed and then like America gets a translation of it but it was weird to see that come to America and that's why it's sitting on my shelf <laughs> I mean nothing is weirder than Project Cross Zone in that regard however yeah because I am at least, still like, amazed that that got an American release <laughs> That one, at the very least, like, every part of it has a corporate master, even if all those corporate masters don't necessarily always want to talk to each other, but... But getting all those corporate masters together in the first place is not something you would ever expect from an American anything. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's why... uh, That's, again, why Super Robot Wars will never have an official English release of any of the licensed games. (laughs) Yep. I should say an official American release. There are many official English releases at this stage. Yes, all Southeast Asian. And all, you know, well, not all, but rapidly after Moondwellers' slight tragedy have been quite well translated. So. They're, they're getting better. Yeah. I've met some of the people that have uh, worked on those, and they're, it's one of those things where, like, the only people who are working on those are very impassioned about them, so... Yeah. That that is a case of the fan base pushing things forward, and pretty much, yeah. yeah. So uh, let's hit some of these questions. Uh, 
Udai, I agree on Outer Worlds thoughts about the world size. They're open enough that they're not vast for the sake of it. Feels very uh, KOTOR-like in that sense. What was the first Western RPG that you enjoyed? Uh, Minds of Moriah. It was a roguelike, literal roguelike for PC circa 1989. Um, Other than that, Quest for Glory. That's a good choice. Yep. I did not play it when it was new, but that's a good choice. <laughs> see. You, Wheels? Uh, I had the Beholder on Super Nintendo. Wow! That version! <laughs> yeah, that version. Because I had a Mac. So that was the only way I could play it. I thought that came to Mac. Did it just not come to Mac until very later? That never came to Mac. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. It's okay. Uh... Yeah, I'm going to have to be the person that comes much later to this party because I had played Western RPGs before this but hated them until KOTOR. <laughs> well, that's a good one to get you in. <laughs> that's one that's not completely impenetrable on some level or yeah. another. I remember, like... Morrowind also isn't my first one, but it's the first one that I have a strong memory of because a friend really liked it and I tried to play it and hated every second of it. Um, to this day, I still don't appreciate it, although I understand that it's important. Um, okay. So, yeah, I never got into any of the really big series at all. Um, I played a game called Castle of the Winds years ago. Hmm. Um, but that was about... The other stuff was like wizardry clones. And did I just... No, you're... Hello, are we back? Yeah, you're here. Did I go anywhere? Uh, if you were, not for more than a couple seconds. Did you hear me saying anything? Uh, you said something about Castle of the Winds or something? It was something I'd never heard of. Yeah, it was. it's an old dungeon crawl game from like the mid-90s. The first game was Shareware, and the second one was mm-hmm. Licensed. And then you mentioned a lot of wizardry clones. And some wizardry clones, yeah. And that, that's about it. I didn't get into any of the really big games... Mainly because most of my computer gaming was based around Tori Station and other BBSs. Fair so enough. I mostly I mostly played shareware. Got a lot of got a lot of options in the mid nineties and sort of dried up after that. Yeah. Let's see. Yeah, as, as it's probably clear from the statements I just made, like I needed them to come to consoles, both because I didn't play much on the PC. Certainly I played some on the PC, but not a lot. And I still can't play games with the interfaces of, like, Infinity Engine games. They still flummox me every time. <laughs> yeah. I, it's one of those things where every... I, I've ranted about this time and again, and I'm going to do it once more. Every time I play a game that's inspired by Infinity Engine material and decides that it also needs to look like Infinity Engine material, I'm like, please, please stop. I want to play your game, but I don't want it to look like Baldur's Gate. I beg of you. (laughs) And they never listened. People enjoyed them some Baldur's Gate, man. I know they did. And I understand. But also, if you just made it top-down, it would help me a lot. <laughs> I don't yep. feel like that's that's a huge stretch from isometric. Uh, let's just, you know, just pretend you're making an Ultima homage. Mm-hmm. 
Honestly, I'd prefer more like Dragon Age style. Like not, oh, not the PC version of Dragon Age. <laughs> no, that was the one that they advertised. Like this one has the isometric camera that you crave. Yeah, and it wasn't good. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, that game is eleven now. Is it ten? Eleven? Oh, this Dragon Age one. I'm going to find out if we're at a significant date here for this. Let's see, Dragon Age Origins came out November 3rd, 2009. Oh, heavens. <laughs> it is almost exactly a decade old. Oh, wow. I'm dying. Wow. Huh, I thought that was a little earlier. But also, uh, yeah, remember that one? Mm-hmm. Remember them immediately regretting the ending they'd chosen for it. <laughs> it was amazing oh. because, hmm? mm-hmm. like, they had made an ending where it was possible for your main character to die, and possible for them not to, and then they made an expansion that starred your same main character, but you could import a main character who had died. <laughs> he is risen, and they did not write anything to explain why. They just expected you to just sort of work it out yourself. <laughs> uh, yeah. Incredible. That was a franchise that uh, never seems like it really found what it wanted to be. And given the seemingly third development restart of Dragon Age 4, it might still not have found what it wants to be if it ever gets another one. <laughs> That's no, fine. Sure they can enough. they can just make it uh just like game whose name I can't remember. Anthem. Yes, that's the one. No, Anthem. Originally, I was about to say something that begins with a moo, but okay. Back Literally when, can't remember instead of having repressed it completely. Back when they announced, okay, back the first time we heard about it, it was back when. Uh, Anthem didn't have a name either. Uh, yeah, it was named after... Uh, let me just... See if I'm remembering this correctly. Okay. So early along... Like, Fireware hit this period where all of their games were codenamed after, like, famous singers... So, like, when Anthem was called Dylan for Bob Dylan, Dragon Age 4 was being called Project Joplin. And <laughs> that version apparently was about heists. And I Dragon don't... Age heist? Yeah, I guess. Like, fantasy heists. Okay, it's interesting. And that's at least two versions ago. <laughs> mm. Yeah... That's, uh, Bioware is a studio that constantly feels like it's teetering on the brink of death at this point, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, who knows. So, we are alone with the world's cutest co-host now. It's good to hear from her. Yeah. Well, should uh, we finish Budai's first question there? Uh, yes, yes, we should. Uh, does the Switch have a denser RPG library than their last three home consoles combined? Well, mm. I, I just went through RP Gamers listings for mm. the last five 
um, going back to Nintendo 64, <laughs> and keeping in mind that all of these numbers are, um, I mean, the numbers for number of listings that we have are not only for sometimes for games that aren't really RPGs like Pokemon Snap, but <laughs> are also counted multiply if they have multiple release dates listed. Yeah. So that's how. That's the only reason the Nintendo 64 has 18 listings. Yeah, no, in 64, like, uh, the infamous yeah. period where Hiroshi Yamauchi was actively uh, mm-hmm. was actively antagonizing Square and complaining yeah. that RPGs were for kids who dye their hair brown and hang out in Shibuya. <laughs> well, yeah, so, yeah, cutting out the number of um, multiple release dates and the Pokemons, we're left about nine or ten games. <laughs> so, but okay. So, but keeping this in mind, that I couldn't actually go through all of these in a very short time and winnow out the multiples and everything. We're just gonna have to take this as uh, a factor. Yeah. Nintendo sixty four had eighteen listings. GameCube yeah. had seventy one. Mm. Wii had eighty. Wii U had thirty nine. Guess how many the Switch has and counting? Three hundred triple digits. Three hundred eighty four. Holy heaven! Fuck. Exactly. Now, the thing is, some of these are single listing only because they're Japan only. Some others were everywhere on the planet at once, like Pokemons, which so they're yeah. single only. Um, and others have three to four release dates at once. Mm-hmm. So it kind of averages out. You're going to have to figure probably close to like somewhere like 120 games total. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to bother counting them all. But to answer... His question, yes, actually. <laughs> yeah. And I was not expecting this. The only one that surprises me there really is the Wii, because I thought there were more for that, but I think it's more just that the ones that I remember were memorable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not really surprised with the Wii numbers, because, I, mean, I mean, it's much, much higher than most of the others, including the one that came after it. Mm-hmm. But it's still a lot less than... The Wii U was bound to be a tragedy, no matter how it was examined. Yeah. And that's why but, the Switch is currently scavenging its corpse. But for fun, let's take a look at the Super Nintendo. Oh, that's going to be a Click big one. for all. Only 114 entries. Huh. And some of these are m- multiples of two or three. Like Breath of Fire 2 has three release dates. Yeah. Uh, Chrono Trigger has two. Yeah, like, yeah, poor Europe. So, I mean, I w- you know, I'm kind of surprised now because I was thinking a, a system with... W- 1,447 licensed games in Japan um, would have had more RPGs, but it's still got a lot. Yeah, I can't believe people are gonna people are gonna forget all about Eternal Felina. Yeah. And actually, you know what? I'm saying this, but these are only the games that we have listed. Yeah. And I went. I mean, I went by a book off the other day, or. Uh, a re- resale store the other day and just looked around the super or old Super Famicom section mm-hmm. and came up with another dozen games I had never heard of before. <laughs> That's so, always um, fun. I mean, yeah, it says here 114 entries. I'm thinking it's probably closer to the Switch's number in reality. Probably. Possibly without as many duplicates, actually, certainly without as many duplicates on Yeah, there's probably um, just a lot that are just release Japan dates. only. Yeah, um, j- if we've actually made a list of all the Japan-only games for Super Famicom, Um, yeah, we would probably get a couple hundred more. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, Shin Megami Tensei by itself. 
There's is, plenty of those there. <laughs> that's five Super Famicom games right there. The SMT 1 and 2, the... And Masami. if, and Majin Tensei 1 and 2. Uh, what about the New Testament, like, uh, remakes? Oh, Last Bible, two of those. But also the remakes of Megami Tensei 1 and 2. Yeah, okay, we're we're getting up close <laughs> to a dozen just for this one series. Yeah. Megami Tensei always found a way to tentacle out into every direction at that time. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like, it's... I think it's just a mark that the Switch in general has a healthier, more diverse library than a lot of prior Nintendo systems. More than most game systems, period. Oh, definitely. Uh, But especially in comparison to a lot of, like, you would get these, like, I mean, to use the N64 as an example, because it's a library I know pretty well, those are, that is a system that is built for 3D action games of various stripes, and that is almost its entire library. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like, you can get a handful, like, you'll get Paper Mario, Quest 64, Aiden Chronicles the First Mage, Eternal Whipping Boy, for all human beings who have heard of it. Um, Hybrid Heaven. um, Hybrid Heaven, oh man, I love how dumb that game is. Yep, and... uh, and Ogre Battle 64, one of the few highlights. Yeah, personal early caliber. Like that and Paper and, Mario 64 are the ones fighting for being the good RPG. <laughs> and I mean, it's, I mean, this was the system that really made us as a website agree that, you know what, we should just include the Zeldas. Just, just so that there's something to cover. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's an argument before then, but Ocarina of Time really kind of sealed it as in, yes, we are including coverage of these, partly because we have in the past and partly because we need something for the Nintendo 64. Uh, <laughs> and people were looking for it at the time anyway, so win-win. <laughs> and it was it didn't hurt that it was a good game. Yeah, yeah. Let's see. Yes. Uh, yeah, and then, like, the GameCube has some? Uh, yeah. Let's see. Lost, King- Lost Kingdoms 1 and 2, Paper Mario 1000 Year Door, Bot and Kaitos 1 and Origins. Skies of Arcadia. Oh, Skies of Arcadia Legends. Quite a few games I would really like to play sometime, except I never actually had a GameCube. I ended up get doing, um, choosing my console for that generation based on um, advertising in Yodabashi Camera, and as soon as Romancing Saga appeared in advertising, <laughs> it was like, there is no contest here. I bought it with the PlayStation 2. This is why we're on a podcast together. <laughs> yes. And uh, then not not long after that, um, the first Kuzunoha Raido game, Devil oh, Summoner. Nice. Because, again, based on largely on the strength of the really awesome jazz music trailer in the store. I mean, both, uh, both Raidos have really good music. Oh, yeah. I'm still happy. Did they... Uh... I, I've always been curious. In America, the second Rido came with a plushie of Jack Frost dressed as Rido. Did that get disseminated in Japan with the release in some fashion? Oh, it was probably one of the special boxes. Probably. Sounds about right. No, better is, I still have a copy, I need to play this sometime, but I still have a copy of Shin Megami Tensei 3 Nocturne with Rido instead of Dante. Oh, uh, yeah, Maniac's Chronicles Edition. Yes. Never, I'm sh- kind of shocked we didn't get that in any form or fashion. Mm. But we got the version. We f- when they finally remade Soul Hackers, we got the version 
that version, which means we got the version with Rido in it. Yep. Rido. I think that's the last time they brought back Rido. Yeah. I mean, part of it made sense because the the Rido, the Kuzunoha detective agency actually had a part to play in Soul Hackers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but then it makes it weird because they never actually brought over the first Devil Summoner game that starred a character from the Kuzunoha detective agency. They tried. For what it's worth, they tried. They tried, but that idiotic like percentage of new content policy. Sony America has a lot of things to answer for. Yes, it does. I do appreciate and kind of miss the period where, like, Atlas had this idea of, like, anytime you need a detective in a Megami Tensei game, you can kind of bring them over from the existing, like, the Kuzunoha Detective Agency just exists, because it's also in Persona 2. <laughs> yes. Yep. Which is kind of interesting, considering the I think the ending of, I mean, the existence of the first Kuzunoha Raido game is predicated on an alternate history. Yeah. I mean, you it's like, if you know anything about Japanese dating systems, <laughs> it's obvious from the start when they say Taisho 30, mm-hmm. when that year does not exist. Yeah. We're in Raido like 1 right it now. It would have been the middle of World War II if it were Showa. Oh. Yep. Yeah, just a very... There's a lot to regret about Sony's choices with regards to what was allowed to release on the PSP. Um, But yeah, uh, in conclusion, the Switch definitely has a denser RPG library than Nintendo's last three uh, systems. It's an incredibly dense library, and a lot of it is digital. Yep, that's also true. I do appreciate that, like, just... There is this assumption that if something comes out on Switch, there's, like... Nintendo is plumbing the fact that, like... Oh! Like, we've got all these games that came out on prior things, and, like, the Switch audience might buy them in ways that the Wii and Wii U audience didn't. So here's Xenoblade again, and here's uh, Tokyo Mirage Sessions again. (laughs) And it's working! Yeah. Go by, I'm, I'm fully on board for both of those. They're adding interesting. They're adding things to Xenoblade, which is going to be weird because that is already a dense game. Uh, <laughs> and they're adding things to Tokyo Mirage Sessions, which is also and, already a very large game. And they're encouraging other company, third-party companies, to invest in like backwards. Um, what was right here? Like upwards. Um, ports, yeah, retro ports. I mean, you're getting we're getting Romancing Saga three next week. I can't mm. believe it. That's coming next week in the U.S. I'm going to die. Yes. I, I well, I'm sure I'm going to die too against the final boss yet again because I don't think I ever beat that thing. Now it's your chance. I'm just wondering how they're going to translate it because the the regular fan translation was always the Destroyer, but the Japanese grammar on the name was kind of weird, so it actually works out better as the one who destroys. Hmm. Which is how I always refer to them. It's like, I mean, if we can have MC, um, like Marvel characters, the one above all, we might as well have the one that destroys. It also, yeah. it implies a less active interest in destruction. It just, it is what it is. <laughs> yes, and that pretty much is what it is. It's the fate of the end of the world. 
However, right. I can I can attest that the animation of the world getting sucked into a black hole at the end if you die is pretty interesting. <laughs> that was a worthwhile ending, wasn't it? <laughs> and hey, I can actually say that it's it is in the top three of all games I've seen end in that manner. <laughs> I, have only, I have only actually seen three games actually end in that manner. <laughs> uh, one of them being a Shimagami Tensei game, of course. Naturally. Yeah. Number four. <laughs> if you take the truest neutral ending, <laughs> everything is. Uh, you know, it was, it's like the equivalent of the like isolation reason in Nocturne. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure Nocturne does it, too, but I still need to play that one. Yeah. And um, the other one was Samurai Samurai Evolution Okoku Guys. Where, again, if, if, if you beat the final boss in the wrong way, you still triggered this. That's harsh. I mean, that's probably still more satisfying than what happens if you beat the final boss the wrong way in something like Chrono Cross, but still harsh. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean... Um, yeah, I mean, the game gives you plenty of hints that you were trying to keep this one character who is currently conjoined to the final boss alive. Yeah. So you're going to be trying to do it, but if that character dies, then it's game over. That's fair. Yeah. And the game actually gives you methods of healing that character without healing the boss. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <sighs> Which is good, because one of the main ways of hurting the boss is to deal damage to that character and through that character to the boss. <laughs> he's so. got fewer defenses no I mean it's the way the game works mm. um, in, in that game you had um, you collected monsters entities and other people and morphed them into weapons mm-hmm. and so mm. most of the damage in battle was being done to the weapon but specific ah. damage types the damage would transfer through the weapon into the possessor hmm which is what you were having to do to hurt that boss. Hmm. Sounds weird. What was, was this very for? Difficult to, hmm? This sounds weird. What was this for? Game Boy Advance. Ah, uh, makes sense. So, it's one of the weirdest po- um, Pokemon-esques that I have ever seen. Hmm. I mean, not quite as weird as the Petri Dish Germ Warfare game. I don't think anyone's... I don't think much is going to top that, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I think that he's played a lot of weird games. She's just staring at me and it's like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, we we have we have had a couple milestones. She's five months old. She has recently been able to roll over on her own, and she just had rice for the first time today. Yay. Nice. Yay. So she's coming along. So okay, out of curiosity, how many staff babies do we have at this point? A lot. As a producer, I mean, there's yours, mine, Platyums, and um, what's his name, Elman Deans. So we got four different dads on site right now. But does Wheels yeah. have the high score yet? Um. Well, he's got three. I've got two. How many does Platyum have? I'm not sure. Two or three. Silk isn't really active at the moment, but he has had three for a lot longer. <laughs> Uh, so that means the score's yeah, not beat. going up, though. <laughs> yeah. So no, but I mean, we don't worry about the score. What we worry about is calling dibs on future job classes for whenever the inevitable team up happens. <laughs> for for the record, your... um, my older daughter is 
uh, laying claim to anything that allows her to get a flying horse. <laughs> Should be a couple of those. Yep, because uh, on the way home from elsewhere one Sunday afternoon, she was asleep in the back, and my wife and I were watch- had uh, Endgame playing on the car's DVD player. Mm-hmm. And she woke up just in time to see the big battle at the end with Valkyrie flying on the flying horse. And that was the only thing she remembers from this movie. Mm-hmm. It's like, flying horse! And then she was like, where did it go? And then flying horse again! Uh, <laughs> over the course of the battle. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Whereas, um, what was it? Wheels, your youngest, your newest one was four kilos at birth? Yep. That sounds like a D12 head die. Make him a barbarian. Yep. Yep. Sounds about right. <laughs> okay. Let's see. Let's hit another question from Budai. When you think There's of... always so many. Yeah. yeah. And we appreciate it. <laughs> yep. When you think of great feats of game coding, what comes to mind? Gold and silver is the obvious one. Damn so it. We're taking that off the board. Oh. <laughs> I was going to say anything with Wada there. Uh, yeah, Iwata, uh, Iwata will will happen. Uh, yes, uh, I mean not just that one, but like um, making Pokemon Stadium, where he had to ret- um, he had to reverse engineer the strengths weaknesses. Yeah, he had to reverse engineer basically the entire battle system over a very short period of time. Which yeah. is also why. And- Stadium's battle uh, system is more functional because it actually fixes some bugs that he didn't realize to implement. Yeah. And, um, what was it? What, wasn't he involved in Mother? He is the only reason that Earthbound was able to come out because its code was completely broken. and was. Yeah, it was like, didn't he say something like, give me three years to fix it or one year to completely make it? <laughs> I don't know what the exact wording is. I'd have to check. There's probably an Iwata asks about it, but yeah, like it's one of those situations he he had to go back and fix that entire game because its code base was so broken that the people who had been working on it could not actually continue developing it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, how Satoru Iwata saved Earthbound from developmental hell. Yes. Yeah. Well, Let's it start been over from scratch. Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, Iwata is like a wellspring of those stories. Yeah, so I mean, there really is nobody else that you could compare to. Mm-hmm. There are other like really impressive feats of coding. Iwata is just the one who kept doing it throughout his career. Well, he, here, here is the uh, here is the quote. It translated: mm-hmm. "If we complete it by fixing what we have now, it will take two years." If it is okay to start again from scratch, it can be done in a half year. <laughs> let's see. Let's see. Uh, keen eye for the uh, concept of, uh, you know, code debt. Yes. Hey, Wheels, talk oh. about code debt. Uh, you mean technical, oh, well. technical debt? Yes. 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 It sucks. <laughs> Bad. Well, there was one other non-game thing that I was thinking of. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had to do with... Um, oh, hello! Other one's home. Um, it was... Um, talk, um, there is a website where they list how to code the song 99 Bottles of Beer in 
any programming language possible. And about 14 years ago, somebody finally successfully did it for Malabulge. Oh. Which, uh, if anyone doesn't know what we're talking about, uh, Malabulge was created to be the most obtuse and difficult programming language ever devised. <laughs> um, it's got serious memory issues, as in it cannot physically hold the entire song in its code memory. Nice. And it, it is fittingly named after a circle of hell, um, when where you can find the original namesakes of the four fiends of the elements from Final Fantasy IV. Uh, and somebody successfully managed to code the song 99 Bottles of Beer on the Wall in this programming language, and it looks really trippy. Yeah, I think Malibulge... I can't remember if that's the one that has, like, a... There's some really weird, like, math operations that happen every time a line is executed that you have to keep in mind. It's terrible. The actual code, <laughs> the actual line of code is B apostrophe um, grave accent semicolon dollar sign nine exclamation point equals capital I lowercase L capital X capital F lowercase I. Yeah. And it, I mean, just in a block like this, it is not only incredibly long, but it also seems to spiral down the screen. Well, that's horrible. Yeah, I mean, seriously, you just got to see this to believe it. It is ridiculous. Let's see it would also be almost entirely undebuggable, which is even worse. I mean, uh, it's it's malbulge. Yeah, I'm just saying. If you get something wrong there, you're better off just starting it over. I mean, uh, yes. So. Yeah. He is the high score on this. Uh, but but this guy, also Japanese, Hisashi Izawa, he does a really good runner-up. Oh, this is killing me. Yeah, it does sort of look like a cascading ASCII art. This is unsettling. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, I mean... Yeah, okay, I will close the scary piece of text. Okay, there we go. <laughs> it is upsetting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was just bizarre. My daughter. Who is that? Oh, that's Daddy's friend. Daddy. Say hello. 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 Yes. <laughs> so we have both both the cutest co-hosts here today. So and they both win. May I? May I have a daddy, please? Okay. Did you go to the toilet? Yeah. Okay. Good. I'm gonna. Okay. Oh, you did? Oh, very good. Okay. I didn't have accident today, so. Oh, even better. Okay. And I didn't know that, but she didn't like sweet potato much. Ah. But she ate three pieces of sweet potato. I'll be. There's something that she doesn't like to eat. Good. <laughs> good to know. Okay. Okay. So, are you heading out now? Yes. Okay. Say bye, bye, Raina. Bye, bye. Bye. Say bye, bye. Bye. Okay. She's waving. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Bye, bye. Okay. Okay. So, are we moving on to the next question, or okay. do you have any other great feats of game of coding? I've been trying to think of one, and I definitely know that there's something I'm going to think of sometime in the next three hours where I'm like, ah! 
but I can't think of one right now. The existence of Witcher 3 on Switch? Okay, yes. I mean, that... Oh, (laughs) that doesn't remind me of one, actually. Uh, Yes? One of the Switch's other miracle ports was was Warframe, which was a, like, persistent loot kind of MMO, kind of shootery thing. Vaguely Destiny-esque. The thing is, the game... Like was ported to Switch by a company called Panic Button, and they made code optimizations such that they made every other version of the game run better. <laughs> wow. That's pretty impressive. It was like something about how the game tracked bullets in 3D space that like uh, that they optimized in such a way that it took like a tenth as many cycles. That's pretty uh, impressive. So it was just one of those things where it's like it was one of the original developers who was commenting on they completely fixed this terrible thing that I made. So yeah, like there's there's a lot of very heroic programming that happens anytime you see those big games on Switch. <laughs> yeah. But, I was thinking, what's the weirdest system that Doom has been ported to? Not uh, counting cross stitch. Printer. Huh? Printer. Printer. I have seen printers run Doom. (laughs) (laughs) Like, Doom is like the hacker version of Hello World, so... Yeah, I mean... Like, it didn't run well, but it ran. Okay. I've seen it it forced onto ATMs. Uh, Let's see if I can find the ATM Doom. Oh yeah, it's also been hacked onto smart fridges, but that's less impressive because like those. I was wondering if it ever got into a fridge. Yeah, yeah, smart fridges have doom. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of these. They're. Let's see. Yeah. Okay. Here's an Engadget article about someone getting doom on the ATM. That's ATMs. I think typically ran a... for a very long time. They typically ran some version variant of OS Stroke Two. So that's honestly like there's at least a base for how you would start porting it. Some of these things, it's just like, what would you even, where would you even begin? How do you even start on the printer version? I don't know. Yeah, I don't want to (laughs) know. Yeah. Like that's the point where you declare victory if anything resembling, like, if it manages to draw a single frame, it's like, no, I'm declaring victory. This actually works way better than it's supposed to. But, yeah, that's, like, the the question of what's the strangest thing that runs Doom changes once every year or so. So, you know, ask us again later, and we'll see. I think there was a, I think there was, like, a Twitter slash Tumblr at one time that that was called It Runs Doom. (laughs) Okay, yeah, the Tumblr is still there. It Runs Doom. Uh, see, I'm seeing people trying to make to improve the port of Doom to Jaguar for some reason. <laughs> because they can. Uh, let's see. Someone porting the 3DO version of Doom source code back to the PC. <laughs> Why? I don't I know. Because they can. Because they can. Yeah, like... The 3DO version is, like, infamous for having been programmed by one person in, like, three months and it running, like, garbage because of it. Speaking mm-hmm. of heroic ports, that was not enough time to do that. That's yeah. that's a 
beautiful, crazy story because it involves yeah. the publisher contracting this poor woman to make this. And she's obviously very talented, but at the same time, she's working with a publisher who thinks, uh, who has promised new levels and new weapons, and who thinks that the way that you do that is that you draw a new weapon and suddenly the game has a new weapon. Basically, <laughs> she had a pointy-haired boss. Basically. Yeah. So for her, the, uh, the true moment of heroism was getting anything finished. Pretty much. That version uh, does have a very strange soundtrack because it was recorded in t- because there wasn't enough time to wrangle with the 3DO sound chip, so it uses Redbook audio that was recorded by the publisher's garage band. <laughs> You're shy. So, yeah, I just found the uh, purported Pokedex they were talking about earlier. Oh, yeah. yeah. Some interesting looking critters here. Okay. Uh, all I want to know is there a Galarian. Gun? I don't even know I said that. Aegislash. It's got to be a regional. I don't variant. believe so. I don't think I saw one. I can, I can no longer say, purchase. Aegislash can no longer purchase this game. Surprised. Yeah. Canceling okay. my pre-order. It's all mm-hmm. over. Okay, it was ported to point of sale purchase terminals. Doom being streamed to a Discord chat in ASCII format. <laughs> All right. Just generating spontaneous ASCII art to show what's happening in Doom. That is very interesting. I can kind of imagine what that looks like, but it's still a nightmare. Uh, the branchless computation hardens against Spectre and uh, Meltdown. Here's a secure branchless version of Doom, seven hours in and one frame rendered. <laughs> okay, there's a lot of... Yeah, I could, it could be on Doom for a while. It's beautiful. Everything yes. will run Doom if given enough time. Yes, the universe runs Doom. But can I run yes. it? Can I run it on my abacus? Uh, give it some time. <laughs> you might need a second abacus, but yes. You're gonna have to make the music yourself. I'll stand there next to you. I mean, I mean, I mean, you can theoretically run it on knitting. Yeah. So. Oh, this reminds me of a thing I was reading about that with the uh, peak wheels is interest that uh, someone had created a magic game state that was a functional computer. Huh. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> I'll see if I can dig yeah, up the I, article. I saw that, uh, I think. I saw it somewhere. Didn't actually read the article. But I, I saw that it was a... Somebody had made it like a Turing complete system based on Magic the Gathering cards. I could see it. Something like that. Hmm. Hmm. <clears throat> Okay. Okay, I think I've found it. I'll send this to you later, but for now, well, I'll just send it to you and you can read it later. Turing complete Magic the Gathering game state. Um, let's see. 
Um, let's see. Let's look at the actual questions again, just briefly. Uh, uh, let's see. What do you think about tutorials? Do some go too far or not far enough? Do experienced gamers take for granted the fact that they know how to play games more? Yes. <laughs> yes. I think that there are uh, elegant ways to do, do tutorials depending upon the complexity of your game mechanics. I really appreciate... Uh, I was looking at Luigi's Mansion 3 has very nice, simple tutorials that like just involve like button prompts and your ghost dog sort of pantomiming what they do. <laughs> and like that's enough to give you the basic idea you need. Luigi's Mansion is a game with relatively simple mechanics, but that can do a lot of things. So, you know, I'm... I think it's a it's nice that it's able to communicate how it works fundamentally within like five minutes but I think in general a lot of a lot of games expect you to already know how games work <laughs> and like even like I especially see this a lot when you like Anytime that you go and see someone else playing a game online and they just sort of, and you're just sort of like dying inside as you watch them fail to grasp how a game is supposed to be played and they'll like get stuck on something and it's like, oh, that's just because not everyone interprets the information the game is giving them properly. So hmm. you just kind of accept that that's just sort of a thing that happens. Game designers do their very best to avoid that for obvious reasons. And that's why you tend to get a lot of text. Text you can refer back to. Text that will tell you exactly how something works. Um, but I think in general, developers have gotten scared of having too long early ones. I feel like we've kind of, uh, like for a long time, Nintendo's more complex games were perhaps the most known for doing this. And I think they've really... Uh, dialed back on them, actually. I think they've uh, come to focus more on enclosing the player early on in areas where they're forced to learn how things work. Hmm. Yeah. Well, well, that, and they've gotten much better at just the design of the tutorial. Oh, true. Like, 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 that... like what you're saying about Luigi's Mansion, Like, I feel like there's been a lot of that in Nintendo games of late. Just naturally teaching you how to play the game without bashing you over the head. I mean, like, to, or, to give uh, it... Or other games that just have a dingle-dingle-dingle, and if, to learn more about this, check this later. Um, that's yeah. what Scarlet Grace does. Is anytime something new happens on the screen, you'll get a notification saying that you can check out the information list later. Uh, Kawazu knows his audience. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's something like, Oh, enemy uses a status ailment that you haven't seen before, but you can guess what it is just from the name. Mm -hmm. So um, it's and it has a notification saying uh, information added to battle compendium status ailments, something like that. Mm -hmm. So I mean, it's never. I mean, for the most basic stuff of how to fight the battle, you get a short tutorial at the beginning, but everything else is just like. To explain why the god of storms just smashed his way through your enemy, check this. <laughs> For uh, divine benedictions. Mm -hmm. 
I would like what I was thinking of in specific was something like uh, with how Nintendo's philosophy to these has changed would be to look at Skyward Sword and Breath of the Wild. I love Skyward Sword, but a lot of its first couple hours is tutorial. And to be fair, Breath of the Wild, its first couple hours are also tutorial, but the Great Plateau is not as explicit about being a tutorial. Mm -hmm. It doesn't set up a situation where someone tells you to do something and then you do it. It sets up a situation where you can't leave the Great Plateau until you've learned how to do the things that it needs you to learn. And that's kind of the difference that they've gone for, is that giving the player the illusion that they're not being taught something, even though you have made it abundantly clear that if they don't learn, they're not going to get any further, gives makes players a lot more accepting of these. People liked the Great Plateau, where they didn't like uh, running up and down Skyloft, learning all the individual mechanics there. I did. I did too. <laughs> but evidently, we were kind of alone. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was saying boo arms. <laughs> but yeah, like I, I think that that's become the philosophy uh, at play, at least in Nintendo's games. Uh, I think it's it's becoming more the philosophy of most things, but a lot of AAA games kind of assume you've played a lot of AAA games and therefore kind of skimp on this. Hmm. But because so many people play them with friends and because the failure state of a lot of these is kind of ambiguous there's a lot of situations where it's just like well screwed that up but I mean I'm just going to keep playing uh, it it changes how things work as opposed to if I don't know how to jump in Mario I fall in a pit <laughs> and I have to start over let me tell you playing Mario the first time headlong the first game of five times I was terrified of a child of Mario falling in a pit. Like I had I didn't to cover have my face. I didn't have time to see the pit. I just could not time jumping, so I just ran headlong into the Goomba until I ran out of lives. Well, I mean, I couldn't even play it for a while. Like this is just watching other people play. It's like, oh god, he found no pit. This is no, horrific. I can't. I can't. can't, I, can't even. I can't take the emotional taxing of Mario falling into a pit to his death. Yep, I think I think our cute little co-host disagrees on something. Huh. It sounds like it. Either that or she's saying, let's move on to the next question. <laughs> sounds like it. Uh, let's see. Do you think there's a certain personality type that loves PvP in games versus those who are trying to help themselves or others? Let me just say, I know someone who has described himself as hating co-op who is also a huge fighting game fan, so yes. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Like, just actively, like... Part of the reason he plays is to make someone else lose. <laughs> okay, well, somebody's being noisy in my ear, so could you say that again? Just, just I know someone who specifically plays competitive games because the fun is making someone else. Really? Yeah. Okay. So... Uh... <laughs> well, I'm... I'm going to have to mute for a while. That's understandable. So just keep talking. I'll do. But yeah, like it's... Uh, there is definitely a personality type that plays for the 
experience of specifically like not just winning but making someone else lose and not in the griefing sense but in the sense of I defeated you not the computer you (laughs) yeah I prefer PvP with a team so that's why you play Iron Banner over and over yes or similar things just yeah trying to make sure that I remember the thing about how Destiny names work and what Iron Banner is. <laughs> well, Iron Banner is just... Um, it's like Team v- PvP, isn't it? Yeah, it, well, it's just... I mean, Destiny has that all the time. Iron Banner is just like an event. Oh, it's just an event for... Uh, for the P- PvP, yeah. And there's rewards, and it's all like wolf-themed, so the gear is kind of cool. So... Fair enough, I enjoy fair it enough. quite a lot. The thing with Iron Banner and Destiny One used to be that, so that normally with PvP, everyone's set to kind of the same level. Everyone's leveled off, so no one has mm-hmm. an advantage. You know, like I'm light level, whatever. And in Destiny One for Iron Banner, they turned that off, which made it a pretty interesting experience, especially for someone like me who played tons of Destiny and was at a higher level. Uh, who proceeded to step on everyone's head yes but uh, that's not how it works anymore so now it's just a fun pvp event with cool gear yeah meanwhile like uh to hit the other side of this coin though like i i don't play games competitively because i turn into a huge dick when i do so like I get, I get too competitive, so I cordoned myself off from competitive got games. Got to, got to trash. Like I can play games with wheels because we're both garbage, so I don't think too much about it. But if I'm actually getting, I, I mean, fighting games, I should say. Yeah. Uh, because you know I don't get too competitive because we're both garbage. But like when I'm playing like something that I'm actually getting competitive in, I get real angry real quick. So I don't want to be an angry boy, so I don't. That's fair. I mean, I have uh, to. I have to stop myself sometime because if I get in a run with just you know getting paired with terrible random teammates, it can just become like a not fun, incredibly frustrating experience. So, I'm just thinking about the period in like the mid 2000s where like people really wanted voice chat with randoms in their games, uh, and wondering, <laughs> and, and thinking about like why did we want that. Why did that seem like a good idea? I'm not sure. I used it to sing the Gummy Bears theme song while playing Halo, so... It was not useful for anyone. You did that last year, I presume? (laughs) No, I'm talking like Halo 2. Okay, so you just haven't changed in the past 15 years. Correct. Bouncing here and there and everywhere. High adventure... Okay, I'll stop. Uh, We need to play Gears again, actually. Yes! You know, Gears 5 is on Game Pass if we want to try that. So is Gears 4, so we can can do the duo. Oh man, we could do... Oh, we should do that. We'll work this out. We'll work yes, this out. yes. I love Game Pass. <laughs> really nice. I've been playing Outer Worlds on PC via Game Pass, so... Nice. <laughs> but let's see. Uh, let's hit this uh, crawl question feel like there's been a res- renaissance of auteur-led games with Hideo Kojima, Yoko Taro, and Sam Lake at all coming back with a bang. I believe Sam Lake is, Sam Lake is of Remedy Entertainment, yeah. uh, if I'm remembering correctly. 
making I'm making guess that this is correct, but I might be mistaking. Uh, no, I was correct. Remedy Entertainment. Uh, Max Payne, Alan Wake, Quantum Break, Control. Uh, sure. See. Uh, coming back with a bang. How much do these guys actually bring to their uh, to the table beyond marketing purposes? And are there any auteurs bubbling under the surface people keep an eye on? Uh, the thing I would note about that is that uh, the ones you've listed are primarily narrative auteurs. Uh Especially Yokotaro and Sam Lake. Sam Lake are our, our little co-host would like to ask if you are going to include the guy who did Moon. Oh yeah, yeah. Moon Moon will be brought up. <laughs> but uh, the the ones you're bringing up are primarily narrative auteurs, which I think is interesting because video games, because of the way they they work, you can have different kinds of auteurs in them. Kawazu. Yeah, Kawazu, I would label a uh, mechanical auteur. Mm-hmm. Uh, to look at it another way, like, uh, you know, because you can always tell based on the mechanics he favors what games he made. <laughs> but, yeah, like, uh, definitely also the guy who made uh, Moon Remix RPG Adventure, uh, Million Onion Hotel, uh like definitely distinct although harder to parse his oeuvre in English soon to be easier though soon to be easier uh, <laughs> but yeah uh, definitely unique um, as for the others I, I feel like cause, but yeah I, I would say like uh, Yokotaro is very much a narrative auteur he plays with the way that games structure their narratives uh, Hideo Kojima uh, very heavily into meta narrative and uh, player game interaction. Although seemingly like so, Death Stranding came out and came out to what I to as I predicted, very mixed reviews. <laughs> uh, and that made me happy because if it had just been a game that everyone could be like, "Yeah, this look, this is great. I love this," I would have been like, "Oh, he made something." less interesting than I would have hoped given that he was no longer shackled to any requirements to stick to a prior canon uh, by all accounts Death Stranding is a weird game that does very strange things so uh, he he kind of can straddle the line between gameplay and narrative auteur we'll see how uh, I respect the idea like that, that also you know changes things like uh, to put it another way I don't think that Max Payne control uh, Alan Wake, I don't think... I'm I'm not huge on them. I think they're pretty good, but I'm not huge on them, but I don't think anyone... I don't think they would have had the lasting impact they did without the writing that they had, which is probably notable for the fact that something like Max Payne 1 and 2 with their heavier noir stylings are much more well-remembered than Max Payne 3, which kind of tried to do away with that. Uh, so I think that, you know, that's how you measure... That, that's one of the ways you can measure the value of an auteur is that you look at well when when you take them out of the equation if you if you get the chance to see what someone trying to imitate them looks like what do you get do people still care and i would say that in all three of these cases we have fairly convincing evidence that if you take things if you take them out you produce a game that people don't care about so for kojima you get stuff like 
Metal Gear Acid and Metal Gear Survive. For, <laughs> uh, for Yoko Taro, you get Drakengard 2, which, like, people don't like Drakengard 1 per se, but they're interested in it. People care about its narrative. People don't care about Drakengard 2. And that's somehow a more damning statement. So that's that's what I would say is, like, if you can, like, in in those three instances, we have solid evidence of when you take them out of the things people associate with them, people notice there's something missing, even if they don't know why. Because, <laughs> I mean, like, at the time that Drakengard 2 came out, like, Drakengard 1 had a cult following, but people didn't know who Yoko Taro was. But people immediately rejected Drakengard 2. <laughs> And I say this as someone that doesn't like any of his games, but I mean, I can still like appreciate that it does reson- resonate with someone. Uh, but like, uh, how about Suda Fifty One? Oh, Suda is definitely a case of like, there's Suda. You have to see it from the perspective of when games of his when grasshopper manufacturer makes a game that he's not that involved with but they put his name on it you can tell <laughs> but uh like uh but yeah suda is definitely another one where it's like uh in a, in a similar way to yokotaro people will look past games that often aren't fun like and oftentimes aren't even supposed to be like you you play like when you're playing Killer Seven or Flower Sun and Rain, you're not playing it because the moment to moment gameplay is this really exciting thing that's happening. You're playing it because you don't have there is nothing on the market that is anything like it. Like I remember uh I can't remember, it was like a horror game director, I wanna say one of the Fatal Frame people or something like that who was talking about uh, Killer7 and how uh, like it's the one non-horror game that knows how to use a hallway to build tension and if you look at how environments are constructed in Killer7 they have this really impressive uh, art design and visual cinematography to make them uh, to make them pop even though literally you're just running down a hallway and like that's you know something that you'll associate with that the the kind of person that can do that is really important to making these kinds of games work. Uh, but yeah, like I, I think that you know these these names do mean something because again, when you see them gone, people don't care as much. Like uh, to look at another one that I enjoyed, but definitely I didn't get what precisely I wanted out of it. Uh, a game that was very heavily promoted as Shinji Mikami and Suda51 uh, Shadows of the Damned which was a game that is fine but is not the game either of them had intended to make <laughs> uh, the the game that Suda had wanted to make that started that project was a largely actionless tribute to the works of Franz Kafka mixed with a trippy hellscape world that sounds bizarre and incredible and impossible to sell. Pretty much, and that's why EA said no. <laughs> but, I mean, like, this sort of thing does excite people who are... Like, 
on some level, to care about some of these sorts of people, once you get into the non-AAA ones, you start having to care about how much do you care about a game just... I don't want to say just, because like there are different reasons to enjoy something, but how much do you care about a game being fun from moment to moment, and how much do you care about a game giving you an experience you haven't had from a game before? And I mean, like... If you care about that, you tend to end up falling into looking for these kinds of people because they tend to be noted for stretching the medium in some way, shape, or form. Uh, again, uh, one of the things that was most exciting to me about a week ago was Suda51 and Swery announced a horror game they were working on together. And that game is going to have a budget of $8. It's going to be broken as hell. And it's going to be completely fascinating whatever comes out of it. So, for the record, Swery is the Deadly Premonition slash, uh, quite a few games at this stage. Mm-hmm. The Good Life, uh, let's see, um, The Good Life was a Kickstarter game that he's got currently in development that is about, uh, living in the British countryside in a world where everyone turns into a cat at night. Sounds <laughs> um, cool. Yeah, uh, and he also recently, like last year, he did a 2D platformer horror game called The Missing, uh, which I've heard very good things about and keep intending to play, but not getting around to it. Uh, but yeah, he's very, very, like, a uh, very narrative auteur in that same way of caring a lot about what you can do with, like, playing with player expectation within the narrative and how uh, you can sort of rely on the fact that like the player is a unique observer within a game space but uh, and oh man he, I forgot how busy he is he's also working on Deadly Premonition 2 right now uh, <laughs> a lot of sweary going on uh, but yeah I I care a lot about these kinds of developers. There's probably more I could talk about. I mean, like, you could... They exist often in the indie space just by necessity, because a lot of indie games are made by maybe five people total. Yep. So, so you but, get people... Or, I mean, we're talking about auteurs. Zune. Yep. Yep. I mean, so, it, it's hard to get more... It's hard to be more auteurish than literally carving your own space out of a shmup genre. Yeah, yeah, holding it until your series is the common name for Essentially it. the only shooter yeah. still gone. Yeah, the... I mean there are others, but I mean, yeah. I mean, but a lot of them are like the old school ones, like Gradius and R type, I mean... uh, that are holding on because of like, um, right here, uh, nostalgia. But Zune or Toho is not only expanding, but it is affecting the entire genre. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Gradius is actually dead. Konami hasn't done anything with that for a while. Our type did just come back, but it is very specifically a nostalgia trip. Uh, let's see, or I should say, is coming back. It just recently yeah. got funded. But uh, uh, I mean, and on the Japanese PC scene, the shmup is a still viable genre, but it is very dominated by Toho. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I was just oh, yeah. I was even, we were even commenting about 20XX having uh, bullet hell boss battles. Mm-hmm. That's very much a tribute to that genre. Yeah, I feel like uh, 
like it would be hard to find an indie creator uh, that cares about that kind of action in uh, the West that did not care a lot about Toho. I mean, like to look at it another way, uh, another one I would probably label at this point, Toby Fox, also very obviously a Toho fan. Uh, but, you know, his his games have a very, like, there's not a lot of them yet, but what ones exist all have a very specific autorial bent to them that I think you would find regardless of whether you knew he had been the common note behind them all, even before you noticed that Megalovania is in all of them. Also, that dude is having a really good year. Yeah, yeah, apparently he's doing a song for, apparently he did a song for Pokemon Sword and Shield. So that's weird. Uh, the wrestling entrance was pretty uh, crazy, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also doing... Like, for some reason, Game Freak just sort of lashed onto him because he also did a bunch of the soundtrack for their little town story, Little Town Hero. Huh. Mm-hmm. So that's weird. That's super weird, actually. Uh, <laughs> Welcome to the game design world, yes. Pretty much. Talented composer, though. Um, mm-hmm. And when you find a good composer, you hold on to them somehow. Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, I mean, looking at some of the uh, some of the places where game music has gone in the years since it was developed, first written. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I told you about um, this one uh, police drama I saw a couple, uh, about two years back, right? Maybe I mentioned it once? Think, uh, it's uh, not coming to mind. Well, there was this police drama, and one scene was at a fancy, uh, like a fancy dinner, and mm-hmm. they had a they had a string quartet in the corner, and in any American or British um, series of this type, they would probably be playing something by Mozart. Mm-hmm. And um, in this, um, in this completely serious Japanese television police drama, mm-hmm. the string quartet was playing a very beautiful rendition of the Dragon Quest opening thing. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Um, yep. And it's like it was not meant as a joke. It was not meant as an in joke. It was not meant as a reference to anything. It was just a normal piece of music being played in the background at a fancy dinner. Yes. That's uh, that's that. Uh, that's that uh, Sugiyama. Yeah. I mean, Sugiyama, Uematsu, um, Kano, um, a lot of the anime and video game composers over here are mainstreamed mm-hmm. in a way that you would never consider from American video games. Yeah, yeah. Though, I mean, granted, Child of Light did get an actual um, Quebecois uh, composer and singer to do their and to do the soundtrack. Hmm. So, yeah, Cour de Pirat. She's got some good songs. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I was actually very surprised to realize that she had done the soundtrack for Child of Light. I was like, I'm just going to listen to this now and enjoy it for a while. So. Mm. That's a fine use of time. Mm-hmm. Yes. But yeah, so I mean, okay, well there's a completely different question right there. It's like, what um, what do you think of game and anime companies being the newest stage of, of patronism for the arts in or for musical arts it's interesting just like 
it just kind of sort of happened by virtue of the fact that like games without music are very desolate <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's one of those things that like it, it's not something you think about but it's like well that's where a lot of music I listen to comes from it's like well we need something to underscore like what's happening in our TV show or game mm-hmm. but I mean in many ways it's similar to like back in Mozart's generation where they were writing a lot for the opera yeah and so a lot of their more interesting works were made to be backdrop music for the operas or yeah. go a couple a couple generations before that and it's all church music yeah 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 so it's just kind of yeah um there's just a lot a lot of interesting music made over the years for games and animation and and I know a lot of it gets looked down upon, but um, especially in America, it's like, oh, game music. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I mean, what can I say? I still probably hum game music to myself once mm-hmm. every few, uh, once every few, I guess, hours. But <laughs> well, hey, but if you, not, if you need the... some new awesome game music, check out the soundtrack to uh, Ukulele mm-hmm. and the Impossible Layer. Oh, that's very good. That's very, very yeah. good. Uh, let's see. Now, I've, now I'm just remembering the uh, the amount of like one of the weirder things is like when you go back to like the 80s and you find someone who like did tons of great music, but never was it attached to a good game. <laughs> like the patron saint of this is like Tim Follen, who did tons of like weird, uh, who did tons of music for games with names like. For games like Silver Surfer on the NES, Spider-Man, X-Men, Arcade's Revenge. Man, Silver uh, Surfer. Good music. He did, mm-hmm. he did like, a... I want to say he did the music for, like, Pictionary. It's a, it's a sad set of things, because, like... Yeah, yeah, he did Pictionary. <laughs> a, lot of, yeah. a lot of great music, almost entirely great music, attached to just endlessly, endless amounts of bad games. <laughs> That's when you just hold on to everything that you wrote and you just put it on a compilation later because all the stuff that you're producing for is going to end up as vaporware. It's kind of a shame because, like, apparently he just kind of stopped composing for most of the time, for a very long time. He's basically just stopped because he didn't consider himself a strong enough composer. Like, he considered himself like a sound programmer that wrote music, basically. Mm. But there's a lot of there's a lot of great music in the Tim Follen catalog, including the one vocal song he wrote for a terrible Sega CD beat 'em up, based off of a comic book no one's thought of in the last twenty years, but which gets stuck in my head about once every seven minutes. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm gonna just go put that in the chat, and you're all gonna have to listen to it at some point. I can't even imagine what you're talking about. Oh man, it is a uh, Sega CD game based off of forgotten comic book Ultraverse Prime. Uh, no he idea got his brother is. to do the vocals, and it's really insane, but it's also <laughs> weirdly musically ambitious and also really catchy. Nice. <laughs> uh, yeah. Sure and I mean, and then you get interesting games where music is either a heavy focus or. They just decided to go all out. Uh, Moon again is like this. 
where they they had a lot of indie musicians like record short samples to be used in the mix and match sound system of the game. <laughs> and Levadelic even had its own in-house band called the Thelonious Monkeys. Yeah. Oh man, I remember like in the late 80s that was not that weird to have like a house band at a game company cuz like Falcom, JDK and the Konami Club. Yeah. Uh, Persona live band still exists. Um, they do other stuff at the same time. Um, the the Black Mages were formed from the old Square regulars. Yeah, but I mean like a I mean like a house band that like all of the soundtracks got credited to them, like the Konami Kukeha Club. Uh, there's one other that I'm thinking of in specific. It's uh, oh, what's the Taito one called? But it's it's weird. Like oh, Zuntata. Zintata. Okay. Yeah, like there's there's a few of those. Also, speaking of uh, both impressive music and uh, game design auteurs, Tetsuya Mizuguchi, the uh, director of Res and Luminous and a number of other uh, Tetris Effect, uh, a number of other games that try to make interesting uh, interplay between visual sound and light, uh, kind of their reason for existing. Definitely someone who you can kind of spot his games a mile away. Uh, just wanted to bring that one up there. Let's see. Okay. Uh, we can... This might be a bit premature, but we can at least examine this Budai question of how about some early Game of the Year predictions? Personal RPG and Game of the Year. RPG community and Game of the Year RPG or not? Uh, Alliance Live HD. Wow. No, it doesn't qualify. <laughs> For which reasons? It's because it's support. Oh, that's how it works. So Dragon yeah. Quest Eleven S is off the table as well. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe uh, yeah. I don't know. Honestly, I never know on this question because I really don't know what's available and or even what some of those games are. Yeah, I think I'd just sooner rattle off the things that have meant a lot to me this year. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> The Fire Emblem was my shoe-in thought uh, earlier this year. I'm still going to go with that. Uh, pe- pending Pokemon. Pending Pokemon. Yeah, That's the new Pokemon. Pokemon pending. And I'm sure... No, it's Pokemon patent and Pokemon pending. Oh, man. Pending, pending has better exclusives. I'm just going to say it right now. Let's see. Um... Yeah, I, I don't usually narrow these down because a lot of the games... I, I play a lot of games that, like... I, I care most about what manages to completely absorb my thoughts. So, this year, things that have managed to do that are Resident Evil 2 Remake, Devil May Cry 5, Kingdom Hearts 3, Dragon Quest XI-S. Like, those are games that successfully took over my life when they came out. <laughs> Some some one of those will likely fight them fight their way to uh, earthly supremacy at some stage, but they haven't successfully killed each other yet. <laughs> I still haven't played Three Houses. I'm sorry. I'm waiting for Terrible. the DLC at this point. Terrible. I'm sorry. I said just, I'm sorry. Just don't make my mistake. <laughs> Uh, 
I won't make your mistake. I'll make my own mistakes. Different, point, stupider mistakes. At some point, I will have a spoiler-filled rant about about that bat path because it's terrible. <laughs> Listen, it's a fine path if you don't accidentally wander into it. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> I, cho- I choose it. Choose it the fate of my own free will. Oh god! Oh man! Wheels, I needed to ramble at you about this. Uh, this is apropos of nothing, but it was weird to me. Uh, did you see the most recent trailer for Persona 5 Scramble? I have not. I looked at it and was baffled by it. I'm going to send that over to you and you're going to look at it and be baffled by it as well. Like, that's the last thing you get to do before you go to sleep, which sounds like it's going to be soon. Sleep. Let me just grab this little trailer for you because I still don't like. I hate that it made me interested in purchasing. I'll put it that way. Uh, let me just give this to you. But yeah, we should we should probably wrap it up. We might uh, discuss uh, game of the year predictions. I I have no idea for overall game of the year. There's been a lot of good games this year, but I don't see any of them as like being this clear cut. Well this is going to win awards whether I agree or not. (laughs) Like, it's one of those things where, like, Red Dead Redemption 2 and God of War last year were both games where it's like, I'm not going to agree with it, but these are award-bait games. Yeah. I mean, just going going for, like, RP Gamers awards, there was a lot of praise going around for Three Houses, so... That that seems like for RP Gamers Awards instead of in general, I would suspect Three Houses is probably the front runner. Yeah. Again, pending Pokemon. So obviously, that's a huge RPG. Yeah. Good year for those, as it turns out. Um. But yeah, those those would seem like. Otherwise, I mean, like I love Kingdom Hearts three, but I don't think uh, anyone else on staff does. So. <laughs> I mean, it's Kingdom Hearts three. It's. You love it or you don't care. Yep, yep. But yeah, like I said, like I love it. I don't think anyone else on the staff does, so it's probably not winning. Uh, and there's my predictions. Um, but otherwise, we should probably wrap this up so that Wheels does not, uh, not fall see- over dead. Not seeing much Muso in this trailer. What's going on? Same! Same! <laughs> There's a lot of everything in Persona that's not that. Also, some 2D platforming for some reason. Okay, here, here's the Musa, but yeah, still. Uh, there seems to be a calendar system for some reason. This looks uh, pretty freaking rad. Yeah, I don't know what happened. It's like someone told. It's like they their ambition was to make. A Persona game where the combat was Muso. Yeah, that's what it looks like. I don't... That could turn out really well or horrendously, but I'm now interested in it, and that makes me angry. <laughs> Does this involve Koei at, at all? Or is this it's Omega Force. Okay. It is the Muso developer. Yeah. But I think they're bored of making Muso games. <laughs> Oh yeah, that's another thing that would be like a personal game of the year opportunity that I just haven't had the chance to play as much because of a lot of things, but like that if I gave it the chance it would destroy my life and that's judgment. Mm. Yeah, big game big year for games for me. 
<laughs> and I am eventually going to get a Switch, just because I am. So It's building to that critical mass. It's waiting for you. Oh, it is way past critical mass. <laughs> it's got a few games. Yeah, uh, I mean, like I was commenting last week about the possibility of it being another PlayStation 2, I'm I'm going to be getting one for the long run. I mean, I'm just about at, I mean, I am out of new games for the 3DS. Mm-hmm. I'm going backwards in time now. <laughs> and I just picked up Luigi's Mansion for 25 bucks. That's a good game. Yep. I'm going to be enjoying it because I really like the second one. Um, I just found it for pretty cheap and at a $3 discount because of a scratch on the box. Nice. Yep. Luigi's Mansion 3, also good. (laughs) Yes, Yes, I'm going to actually have to get something for that. Yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah, Switch games. In that episode we lost, uh, I was streaming for my Switch, and Dave was like, how many games do you have? So we counted. It was over 100, wasn't it? It was like 136 or something. I don't know how you do this. I have no idea either. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, so, we're fans. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of those were like $5 sales or $5 games in general. But, I mean, yeah. a lot of those were good $5 games. So, yeah. I mean, that's that's good. <laughs> But yeah. Uh, otherwise, I think we should probably put this one to bed. Uh, well, speaking comments. Of which, little co-host is finally waking up after sleeping on my shoulder for the last fifteen or twenty minutes. <laughs> mm, bed. Podcast goes to bed, so little one can wake up. Uh, yeah. Let's see. Um, She's sleepy. She's still sleepy. So. Questions, comments, usually best placed in the comments section, but we will answer them if you add us in the Q&A quest section of the Discord. Uh, if you can, if you at Wheels on Twitter, we will laugh, but then you, you know, it might happen anyway. Uh, but yeah, those are the best place is usually in the comments section of the most recent episode. Uh, otherwise, uh, I think that's it for us this week. Um, yeah, I'm just over, still over on Twitter, plugging my stuff and trying to get connections and stuff. So it's a hard life. It's a hard fight. It's a hard life for us. Yes. You should make uh, you should make a video of yourself doing like uh, Jay Sherman from the Critic. Buy my book. Buy my book. I think that might have yeah, an audience limited to like levels. seven people. <laughs> that would require levels of forthrightness and. What's right here? Hotspot that I do not possess, because I really am. I really don't like pushing myself forward that much. Understandable. And again, I will. I will just say, Wheels. I think that the the joke audience there has would be you, me, and like seven other people. So, yeah. I don't think the critic lasted into cultural consciousness the way you would hope. No, probably not. I, I remember a few episodes of that thing, but not much. And that's the 90s. But yeah, so uh, you can follow Wheels on Twitter at AskWheels, uh, Gaijin on Twitter at Michael Yadimisu. Yes. And me on Twitter at FamilyMaster. My account is protected, but I'll probably approve you regardless. Uh, But yeah. 
So, uh, otherwise, questions and comments in the uh, most recent episode, and see you, Space Cowboys. <laughs> <laughs>